ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen. 500 days of fighting in Ukraine, 9,000 civilians dead, maybe 100,000 soldiers killed. Now the war could get even deadlier. The United States has agreed to supply Ukraine with cluster bomb munitions. Ukraine is in a battle for survival after Russia's invasion last year. But what are the ethics of using cluster bombs and how long can this war go on? Professor Samuel Moyne of Yale University is one of the world's leading philosophers of law and human rights. Well, they're an extremely potent weapon, which is why Ukraine would like to use them to try to break through the Russian lines. And they basically explode and kind of have many bombs that are scattered and you know many of those don't explode and if that happens then they are kind of left in the landscape but that's why they're so notorious they're extremely effective at causing enormous damage but they also have a penchant for doing very long-term damage because many years or decades later people happen across where the fighting took place and explode one of the bomblets that was uh, strewn by the attack. Yes, I noticed that uh, something like 123 countries have signed a convention against cluster weapons. Three notable countries are not signatories, uh, Russia, Ukraine and the United States. Do we know why that is? There have been treaties against specific weapons since the 19th century going back to dum-dum bullets, chemical weapons, and sadly, most countries tend to sign treaties that cover weapons they no longer plan to use. I mean, even napalm has not been made fully illegal. And these countries are ones that, especially the great powers involved, my country and Russia, don't want to rule out the possibility of using these. Now, there is another treaty, the kind of main law of war treaty called the Additional Protocol to the Geneva Convention, which some people think effectively makes this kind of weapon illegal because one of the ground rules of the law of war is that you can't use indiscriminate weapons, weapons that in principle can't be used to save civilians. And so there's at least an argument that even for those big countries, Russia and the United States, as well as Ukraine, this weapon is illegal, but it's a hard sell. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is reportedly stalling. Don't the Ukrainians who've requested these cluster bombs have the right to seek whatever weapons they can to reclaim their territory? They do, as long as the weapons aren't illegal. But by the same token, other powers like the United States have the right not to give them those weapons. That's why there's such a kind of international outcry. I don't think anyone contests Ukraine's kind of ground moral entitlement to engage in self-defense or even to ask for weapons as long as those weapons are legal. What people are contesting is their right to get those weapons. They're not entitled to anything from the United States or other 
allies, it's up to those countries to decide whether there are moral and legal limits on their generosity. The Russians have reportedly used cluster bombs. I mean, again, for argument's sake, the Russians have got it. Don't the Ukrainians have a right to use them? I don't know what your mother said, but mine always told me that two wrongs don't make a right. Mm. Uh, Mine said pretty much the same thing. there may be a legal right in the sense that if they find someone willing to give them cluster munitions, they have a right to take them. No law prohibits it, but they may not have a moral right in the same way that if your brother hits you, you may not have a moral right to hit him back with the same kind of fist. Just this week, Sam, Ukrainian President Vladimir Volensky has made a point Perhaps it's almost been a highlight of the fact that the war has now reached its 500th day. Now, I can see how 500 days of resistance in defending your homeland is a matter of pride. But how do we end this war? Can we end this war by not escalating the conflict? From an outsider's perspective, it seems to have been a war stalemated almost from its first day when the Russians failed in their offensive. And in spite of all the efforts, they are still in control of a goodly portion, although a small one, of Ukraine, the eastern part. It seems like an immobile war from that perspective, from the perspective on it as a kind of quagmire. It seems like this debate over cluster munitions is really just a kind of diversion from the harsh reality that this is an endless war with no prospect of further advance for either side. And that's the moment where I think any realist needs to say that the alternative to endless war is some kind of peace. It may be not perfectly just from the perspective of either side and certainly not from the Ukrainian side, but that's preferable to endless war. Now, it's a different question what the terms of negotiation would be, what Vladimir Putin would accept in his weakened situation and so forth. But if we continue the discourse where Ukraine has a moral right to every inch of territory, including Crimea, what we're really saying is that there are going to be more and more rounds of desperate requests for more weapons to stave off the Russians, which is really just keeping them in place where they've been since the first days of the war. Sam, you've spent a lot of time studying in detail conflicts, especially in the 20th century. How much is this looking now at day 500 like Iran, Iraq in the 1980s? How much is this looking like the Afghanistan quagmire, which really was a quagmire first for the Soviets and then for the United States and its allies? How similar are the echoes? It's very similar. And you could throw on the list many other disputes, including the struggle over the borderlands between India and Pakistan, Kashmir, many other places. And in all of those situations, I think what we need in the first instance is some international political authority, presumably the United Nations, to take over pending some later resolution. It's clear that there's no military solution. We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And we need to imagine that a peace that's not always as just as we might like, which is nonetheless preferable to endless war. 
I saw a piece in The Atlantic a couple of uh, weeks ago by two fairly eminent uh, scholars saying there is a time for negotiation, but essentially the war's got to run its course, which to me meant a certain number of people have to die before we realise there's no choice to negotiations. I'm simplifying it, but how, how moral is that position? I mean, it strikes me as atrocious because if there's no purpose to a 500-day war other than loss of life, including civilian life, but military life as well, along with massive infrastructure, just to essentially reach this conclusion that was visible before any of the carnage, then what was the point? I mean, it was useless suffering, useless destruction. And the idea that we needed to experience it to reach the outcome strikes me as absurd, but also abhorrent. Ukraine is also ramping up its demand for NATO membership, which is perhaps, and I underline the word perhaps, one of the things that Russia took as a provocation and therefore its justification for its aggression Is there, though, a moral case for NATO countries to continue to refuse the Ukraine? Because, look, the war's already started. And by the way, Finland, which I think has a border of comparable length with Russia, it's now in the club. So is there a moral case to say to Ukraine, no, you can't join? This is murky territory because de facto, the West and and my country in particular is defending Ukraine via weapons transfer, if not by using its own troops. Although I think there are a fair number of Americans, especially volunteer forces on the ground in Ukraine. If that's true, what NATO membership really means is this legal obligation to defend it in all circumstances. But the West is defending it de facto already. So maybe not a lot turns on it. If you think that there's a lot of symbolism in joining NATO, well, then we'd have to have a debate about whether that symbolism is more a source of provocation for the Russians than of safety for the Ukrainians. I'm not sure that it would add a lot of safety, given that there's already a war there, as you point out. It seems like more safety would be provided by a political resolution to this particular campaign than by NATO membership. But we have to have a kind of honest debate about what's already going on, what led to it, and what our next steps would likely, where they would lead. Just finally, Sam, you said something there that was rather intriguing. We know that there are volunteers from all around the world that have taken part, usually against the advice of their governments, by the way, but volunteers that have taken part in the Ukraine conflict. You've got a pretty good inside intel on this. Are you aware of American quote-unquote advisers being on the ground? This would uh, be very (laughs) redolent of uh, the Vietnam conflict 50 years ago. That began with American advisers in Vietnam and escalated into half a million troops. It's true. true. There have been advisors many places in the world that didn't escalate into half a million troops. So I don't think many people now foresee an escalation that would involve more honesty about how many Americans are already there, including formal government or actors, not just informal volunteers. But Joe Biden, I think, has openly been very clear 
Now, you might respond, well, old U.S. presidents like John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson also promise not to escalate. But it seems as if the war is sufficiently unpopular in the United States now, and indeed Donald Trump is running against it, that there's a kind of political constraint on escalation that didn't exist in the early years of the Vietnam conflict. So it's a source of concern. And I think we should know much more than we do, thanks to media and reporting about who's actually fighting and what categories they fall in, what nationality, whether they're volunteers, etc. How much intelligence is helping Ukraine, not just weapons transfers, but the risk of escalation in the sense you're suggesting seems slight for the moment. Professor Samuel Moyne of Yale University, one of the world's leading philosophers of law and human rights. Sam's got a new book out and we're going to come back to him in a month or so and talk about that. It's called Liberalism Against Itself. But for now, thanks for joining us on the program, Sam. Thanks as always, Andrew. And you're with me, Andrew West, and you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. For most of the Ukraine war, the United Nations has been powerless. The General Assembly condemned Russia's invasion, but Russia's a permanent member of the Security Council. It can veto any action. But what if the UN had its own permanent peacekeeping army? Dr. Eyal Mayruz of Sydney University has been working with Canadian scholar Peter Langeel on a plan for a UNEPS, a United Nations Emergency Peace Service. First, we're seeing a continued shift in a multipolar UN Security Council, which is the most powerful body of the UN. And this trend has and continues to decrease cooperation between these five veto-carrying major powers. We've seen this most visibly, obviously, during the Syrian civil war and then in Ukraine, but there are other situations as well. And then we have the US being at loggerheads with Russia, mainly over Ukraine, with China over many, many issues, Taiwan, the South China Sea, the genocide of the Uyghurs, the coup in Myanmar, tech theft, you name it, the pandemic, the list goes on. Last year, 2022, was already saw an increase in the number and scope of armed conflict, first time in years of positive decreases. And then to focus on peacekeeping, not a single large-sized peace mission was created in over a decade. That's amazing, despite the clear need in more than one conflict. And uh, the missions established during this time were mainly political. The four largest multidimensional peace operations today in the DRC, Mali, South Sudan, and Central African Republic are all older than 10 years old and are not doing very well. In fact, the mission in Mali is now folding by the UN because of refusal of the Mali government to extend its mandate. So in the face of all these challenges, the UN and UN peacekeeping have been facing increased crises of legitimacy, of credibility, of effectiveness. And what the UN needs is a set of stronger reforms. So what would a United Nations emergency peace service look like in a very brief description? It'll be a force of uh, volunteers that will be under both command and control of the UN. It will be made up of around 13,000 troops, uh, civilians and police that will be able to deploy within 72 hours of a council or UN Security Council resolution. Unlike the months or up to a year it takes nowadays for a regular peacekeeping mission to be deployed. 
So would it effectively be a UN standing army with a mandate for peace? In some ways, yes. This idea of a standing army is almost as old as the UN itself. But this will be uh, a bit different because, first of all, it will not be an army. Second of all, it will be made up of volunteers, so it will not be under the command of the states who send those troops, which were other ideas in the past. And therefore, the UN will have stronger control over deployment and over decisions. And uh, this will make a a huge difference to the uh, ability to work not only in peacekeeping, but also in peace building in various areas of prevention rather than only response. But it would have to be an armed force, though, wouldn't it, Ial? I mean, it would have to have lethal powers in certain circumstances, wouldn't it? Yes, it will have an armed uh, component for sure, similar to what uh, peacekeepers today have. It will be deployed under the Security Council, and therefore the Security Council is the only body authorised to uh, send troops for uh, missions that involve the use of uh, armed uh, force. Don't we already have, I think you've referred to, a plethora of United Nations peacekeeping forces, the Blue Helmets, they've been deployed in various hotspots around the world. Why aren't they working? The main two reasons are I've kind of alluded to. One is the problem of control. If states have control or command over the uh, Blue Helmets, then they can say, no, we're not willing to do that or this. And the UN sometimes gets stuck. That was obvious in, for example, in Bosnia. But the main problem has to do with the rapid deployment, because if we go back to Rwanda, 1994 genocide, it took three months for 600,000 innocent civilians to be slaughtered while the UN was kind of struggling to put together a peacekeeping force. But this new idea, or not new, but this idea of UNIPS will be able to deploy within 72 hours, not three months or a year. So a lot of the issues that have to do with prevention, with coming in at the right time to uh, prevent either escalation or mass violence, could be solved by this new uh, idea for You do mention two tragedies that I think still sit at the forefronts of people's minds, and they are Bosnia-Herzegovina, especially 1995 with the Srebrenica massacre, and then the Rwandan genocide. Didn't both of these tragedies occur while UN peacekeepers stood by, if not um, helpless, then certainly constrained in some ways? I mean, there were questions as to why the United Nations peacekeepers did not intervene with lethal force. Yes, in the case of Bosnia, some of the measures that the UN put in place required command and control of both the UN and the countries that uh, send the peacekeepers, and that didn't work well. Another was insufficient number of uh, peacekeepers on the ground. The Dutch battalion didn't have the numbers to address the violence in Srebrenica. And in the case of Rwanda, what happened was that the major powers at the UN took out the 3,000 or so peacekeepers that were already on the ground, our fear that something will happen to them, And only about 250 volunteers stayed behind, which was not enough to stop the genocide. If such a force that you're proposing would not be run by commanders from various member states, who would run it? 
Well, the UN will be in charge. The Security Council will be authorized to deploy. But once it's on the ground, then the UN will have its own command structure that will be answerable to the Security Council. But depending on the situation, one of the advantages of such a force is that it will be able to be sent to existing peacekeeping missions that suddenly see a spike in the level of violence and support their work. So in such cases, it will likely be under the command of the existing peacekeeping mission commander. You've clearly put a lot of thought into how this would work. I can, however, see the doubters raising one point, and you keep mentioning it, the United Nations Security Council. We already have a situation where one member of the United Nations Security Council, Russia, has gone to war against a member state of the UN, conceivably, wouldn't Security Council members simply veto the intervention of such a force when they don't like it, when it's not in their interests? Well, that's a very good point. Unfortunately, that's the reality of the UN, that uh, five permanent members of the Security Council can veto resolutions. But unfortunately, the UN Charter does not allow for a change unless all five agree, which will not happen. And so this is the reality we have to live with. There is a kind of a, you could say, checks and balances on misuse of such a UNEPS because all five permanent members do need to support it. However, in such cases, as you allude to, which permanent member one or more will have uh, ulterior motives to stop the deployment of UNEPS, then we're kind of stuck. There's effort at the moment by the General Assembly to build ways around the Security Council through the Uniting for Peace resolution that was used in the case of Ukraine, but as you say, insufficiently. So uh, it will not solve all the problems, but hopefully it will allow the UN in situations where the P5 do agree that a rapid prevention is needed to deploy such a force very quickly. We would have to be somewhat discriminating, though, about where we drew the troops and certainly the commanders from, because, frankly, there are armies around the world, including armies of UN member states, that are notorious for their behaviour. Certainly, the criteria for a recruitment should be quite strict, but the very idea that this is a force of volunteers that are keen to make a difference in the world which can be organized in terms of the uh, recruitment process, will hopefully put important restrictions on recruiting personnel that is unfit. But I wouldn't say that this has to be restricted to certain countries because there are good and conscientious people all over the world. And part of the idea behind the UNEPS is that it will be legitimate. And in order to create legitimacy, You need the makeup of people from all over the world, especially from the global south, where a lot of the work of the UNEPS is likely to take place. Eyal Mayruz of Sydney University. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report. Pope Francis has cemented his control over the powerful College of Cardinals, naming 21 new members. When he dies or retires, he'll have appointed 73% of the cardinals who'll choose his successor. Now, they come largely from the global south where the church is growing, except for one rather large island. For the first time since World War II, Australia will not have a bishop with a red cap. 
Finally, the New South Wales Parliament will soon debate gender ID laws, which would allow transgender people to officially change their gender on government documents. Many transgender people experience violence in public amenities, but there has been a string of cases, mainly overseas, where women in prisons, hospitals and hostels have suffered violence from transgender women. That's got some feminist groups concerned about possible law changes. Rachel Wong is Chief Executive of Women's Forum Australia and a law lecturer at Notre Dame University. At the outset, I will just clarify that I do like to use the term sex self-ID laws or just self-ID laws rather than gender self-ID laws. The reason for that is that while it's a subjective state of gender that individuals wish to have recognised on official documents like birth certificates, it's often the objective unchangeable state of sex that has actually been altered on those documents. So I will just clarify that. Sex self-ID laws have almost been rolled out across the entire country and those basically mean that anyone can change their legal sex on their birth certificate with little more required than a few pieces of paper and a fee. Those individuals are then entitled to be treated as that sex for all intents and purposes under the law. Previous laws required surgical interventions before a person's birth certificate could be altered But these self-ID laws have no such requirement. Queensland was the latest state to adopt such laws. I mean, you outlined some concerns about what happened in Queensland. What are they? So I have multiple concerns. Firstly, opposition to such laws by women's organisations like mine are grounded in the universal recognition of the importance of single-sex spaces and the risks that biological males can pose to women and girls. Self-ID laws effectively allow any man to self-identify as a woman and access female-only spaces, activities and services. They undermine the very purpose of single-sex spaces, which acknowledge the biological sex differences between men and women and exist to protect women's and girls' dignity, safety, fairness, quality and so on. Mm. Yeah, I think though, Rachel, the argument is that how often do these violations occur? I mean, the reality is the vast majority of perpetrators of sexual violence are men and the vast majority of victims are women. The pattern of male violence has not changed just because somebody is transgender. Whether it's one or two or three cases of sexual assault by a transgender male in what should be a woman-only space like a prison or a hospital ward or a refuge, even one of those situations is too much. And laws like this, self-ID laws, self-ID policies, are allowing situations like that to occur. New South Wales is now flagging that it is the next state that could introduce these um, ID laws. What caution would you advise then? I would advise the New South Wales politicians who will likely be presented with independent Alex Greenwich's self-ID bill within the next month to look at the well-documented evidence of harm caused by self-ID laws and policies, both across Australia and internationally. The kinds of harms arising from self-ID laws range from the sort of very severe kinds of harm, like rape and sexual assault, which we've seen in places like the UK, like the US, like Canada. We've seen women being raped by transgender males in women-only hospital wards, in women-only prisons, in uh, women-only refuges. There are instances of transgender males sexually assaulting women in all these different spaces which are meant to be women only. And there's also another situation in a different Victorian prison where there is currently a biological male sex offender being housed in that prison. While he hasn't assaulted those women, my understanding is he hasn't been fully integrated yet, but the intention is that he will be. Those women are terrified. And these are women who come from backgrounds of sexual assault, sexual abuse, all other kinds of violence and trauma. To have a male in their prison is just 
incredibly disturbing for them. But even the women who haven't necessarily been sexually assaulted, many of them in these situations, especially in prison situations, do fear that they will be sexually assaulted. And women are actually starting to exclude themselves from public spaces because of situations like this. And women start to hear about stories like this. It does have this chilling effect on women as well. And wasn't there a case in Scotland... Yes, last year Scotland had actually proposed its own version of self-ID laws. The UN Special Rapporteur for Violence Against Women and Girls, she actually wrote to the UK government and said that she was very concerned about the impact of those laws on women and girls. Then that in conjunction with this case of Isla Bryson and cases of other male offenders who were found to already be being housed in women-only prisons due to self-ID policies, then caused the UK government to actually exercise its never-before-used veto powers to block that law. And the fallout of that, the sort of the failure of the self-ID law in conjunction with the absolute controversy around the fact that these male sex offenders were being housed in women's prisons did help to lead to the uh, downfall of Nicola Sturgeon. How do we, though, deal with the reality that a transgender woman is likely to be at severe risk if the transgender woman is jailed in a men's prison? Yes, I think that's a really important consideration, and I think it's vital that the safety of all prisoners is protected, of course. Our prison systems already have segregation based on security and risk, and I think that creating a space for trans prisoners in prison that corresponds with their biological sex could be facilitated by sectioning off wards like is already done for other vulnerable inmates. And just finally, Rachel, I mean, in a recent piece, you did say that we have to be very aware that people do experience gender dysphoria. How do we deal, though, with the numerous studies that show very high levels of depression, self-harm among people experiencing dysphoria? I think we always need to, you know, obviously show compassion and respect to those people. And we need to ensure that we are using the best, most up-to-date medical-based evidence to treat those with gender dysphoria so that we are producing the best outcomes for them. I know that due to concerns about the harmful effects of puberty blockers, hormones, and surgery, and concerns that the underlying health issues of these people aren't being properly addressed, countries like Norway, Finland, Sweden, and the UK are actually starting to move away from the prevailing gender affirmation model to a more holistic approach that seeks to address the underlying health issues that are often associated with gender dysphoria. So I think it's really important that we do that and that these people are able to access the best medical care and support and that our laws support them to do this. Rachel Wong from Women's Forum Australia. And that's the show for this week. You can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Anita Barrow and Harvey O'Sullivan. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.